Jack Spirit here with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Coming to you once again from Arlington, Texas today with episode 619 of the Survival Podcast. It's a Tuesday, March the 8th, 2011. And uh, today we are going to do a show we normally do on Fridays. This show's all about you. It's a listener call-in show. If you'd like to hear yourself on a call like th- or show like this, just pick up the phone and dial 866-65-THINK. That is 866-65-THINK. 866-65-THINK. Uh, leave your message. You get about two minutes to leave your message, and I'll try to get your call on the air. Um, before we get into your calls today, let's go ahead and take care of our housekeeping. Housekeeping item one, as always, let's take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one today, Ready Made Resources. What more can you ask from a company for them to say what they do and do what they say? That's what Ready Made Resources does. All the resources you need for your prepping, ready-made and ready to go and ready to be shipped to you uh, straight out the door. Uh, most times when you order them, some of the stuff with long-term storage food right now with everybody, there's some backlog, and that tells you something about the times we're entering. But check out Ready-Made Resources today for everything from that long-term storage food to 12-volt products for your solar projects and even the most extensive solar catalog I've ever seen. Make sure you download their solar catalog, uh, and they get a lot of wind uh, product in that as well. That catalog, I'll tell you what, is probably worth its weight if you printed it out in gold. Uh, just from the technical specs that it provides for you. Next up today, thinking about stuff that's worth its weight in gold in certain circumstances. I talk a lot about precious metals and gold and silver, uh, but there's another precious metal I'd like you to consider. That's brass-containing copper-jacketed lead. Yeah, ammo, because you know that gun that you have or all those guns that you have? Uh, without ammunition, they're nothing but really expensive clubs. And uh, most of us don't buy our guns to have expensive clubs. We buy them to have firearms capable of doing whatever that particular weapon is capable of doing. Uh, from whether it be close quarters combat or putting meat on the table with hunting and uh, hunting and uh, gathering out in the forest. So how do you do that? You make sure you have a good supply of ammo that will take you through tough times and good times. The best place I know to get your ammo is BulkAmmo.com. Great prices on the most common calibers out there. Excellent lightning fast shipping as well and a strong supporter of the MSB. Uh, orders over $200. You get a free ammo can when they are in stock. Sometimes the ammo cans are out of stock and if they don't have one, I can't send you one, so whenever they're in stock, the code will get you a free ammo can with all orders over 200 bucks. So check out BulkAmmo.com today. Remember to consider joining our forum. I think it's really an underutilized resource. We've got about 20,000 people listening to the show and only 6,000 forum members. So uh, I think a few more of you might want to jump on there. You might be surprised at the relationships you would form and the information that would, you would gather. To find our forum, go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on, you guessed it, forum. Uh, next up today, I want to 
remind you guys, we do have an Android application now. All you guys with Android phones, uh, you can go to the website. You'll see a little medallion in the center column that says uh, TSP Android app. Click on that. You get more information there. Those asking for an iPhone app, that's part of the survival channel and the work I'm doing with Nick over at Save Our Skills that will eventually be here. It will be a while. I can't see making the investment on it now to limit it here when we have a much bigger plan for it in the future. Um, next up, remember, consider joining the Member Support Brigade. Do that. You get exclusive content available only to members. Over $100 worth of free ebooks, 20 videos by me available nowhere else, discounts to over 25 vendors, and you support the show at 20 cents an episode. It's a hell of a deal, that MSB. Uh, that's why so many people have taken advantage of it. I think you should, too. Um, if you think the show's worth more than 20 cents an episode and you want a big ROI on top of it. Um, very last but not least today, real quick mention, I do have the uh, five-book challenge going with Gary Vaynerchuk this week. I don't know if it will extend into next week or not yet. Uh, i got to talk to him about that. But basically, here's how it works. You buy five copies of the Thank You Economy. You email him your receipt. You email me a copy of your receipt uh, just so I can keep track of it. He's the important one. We set up a session sometime in April. You get a private closed-door uh, virtual session, probably on GoToMeeting uh, will be how it's done with Gary Vaynerchuk, where you can ask him questions and get private access to uh, one of the most sought-after business consultants there is. I know this only really affects about 10% of the audience, so I did a long blog post explaining everything. Uh, if you guys want more details, go check it out. But um, you know what? Gary came on the show. He came on a show that really, and think about the Survival Podcast and Gary, not exactly two worlds that overlap a great deal, and he did this. Uh, those of you that think well of his work and want to know more from him, I'd appreciate it if you take him up on this challenge. Five books will cost you about 70 bucks. Um, I'm doing a minimum of two two-hour sessions after this uh, that will be private as well, just me, uh, to make sure everybody gets all their questions asked about business. And if there's 60 of you, I'm doing three sessions. If there's 80, I'm doing four. You got, you kind of get the way that works. And um, these are private. They won't be available in public anywhere. Uh, so please consider doing that. And with that, we're ready to go ahead and take your first question of the day. Again, on the Gary Vee thing, I know that like 90% of you really are not business owners or entrepreneurs, and that's okay. Uh, this is something I'm doing for that, that segment of the audience. I try to do things for a lot of people. And think about it this way. If you're not an entrepreneur, there's probably a lot of people out there that maybe aren't into gardening, and I do a lot of gardening for them. Uh, and or I do a lot of gardening for you, and maybe uh, that's not really their cup of tea. So I do try to spread it around and keep all things that will help us live that better life if times get tougher, even if they don't. Now let's go ahead and take that first question. Hey, Jack. This is Barry from Georgia. I've got a real quick question about Hoover culture. Um, I know I checked Paul Wheaton's side. He said you could use pine, but then I saw a video that he did that said you couldn't use conifers. So if you could sort of uh, help straighten that, straighten that out in my head. I've got a bunch of pine that's on the ground. It's been on the ground for over a year. I'm thinking about using them in Hoover culture just to test out the theory. Um, but don't know if I can use fine. If you could answer the question, I'd really appreciate it. Thanks. Well, the actual answer there is you can use anything you want. It's just that we prefer one thing over the other. And, uh, you know, when we look at something like conifer, a pine obviously is a conifer. So if we had a choice between some old uh, poplar or oak or something like that, uh, or using something like pine, uh, we would prefer to use the poplar or the oak or some other type of hardwood or, uh, or uh, deciduous softwood. Uh, it has to do with sap, it has to do with acidity levels and what happened, but 
Uh, there's been many examples on Paul's own forum and in one of Paul's videos where, um, you know, pine tree and, and, and other conifers have been used and have worked out uh, really well. What we don't want to use are things that are allopathic like black locust and black walnut because they have a detrimental effect on other items actually being able to grow. So pine may not be as desirable as oak or as desirable as poplar, or as desirable as hickory, or desirable as elder. But it will work. It may take a little bit longer to get into a real cycle of functioning well for you. You've got the sap in there. You've got some acidity to deal with as well. And, you know, pines have a little bit of an allopathic effect as well, but nowhere to, near to the level that, you know, again, like black locust or black walnut would. Uh, so that's uh, that's kind of the, the, the skinny there based on Paul's own explanation of it. I want to remind you guys, I am having Paul back on for his, uh, his third session. I'll be interviewing him on a Saturday. That's how much I, I, I want to get him back on. I'm willing to do that on a Saturday. Uh, and that'll be Saturday the 19th. So that show will air on Tuesday the 22nd of March. Paul Wheaton and we're going to be talking specifically this time about hygge culture and methods of passive irrigation, including swelling and other methods that allow you basically uh, to completely eliminate irrigation as something you have to do uh, with your, uh, your permaculture and agricultural systems. Let's go ahead and take another call. Hey, Jack, this is Bobo on the forums. I recently moved to West Texas, and I've learned that my soil and the water that, uh, that comes out of the irrigation is very alkaline. I want to grow blueberry bushes, and they require very acidic soil between 4 and a 6 pH. I've actually tested the soil with one of those home testing kits, and I'm looking at about 7.5 right now. I know that I can add sulfur to the soil. I know I can add ammonium sulfate to the soil, and I can even uh, use peat moss and also organic matter to help lower that pH. I've even thought about taking the water, soaking it in peat moss, and watering my blueberry bushes uh, with that to try to prevent the bushes from dying because of the alkaline soil. Any other ideas you think might be a good idea? I'd love to comment on it. The reason I'm going blueberries is because my two-year-old daughter likes blueberries, so I like blueberries, and I want to get her encouraged into seeing how they grow and such. Thanks again for the show. Well, it's absolutely the case that blueberries, uh, cranberries, and some other berries that are similar, uh, like Saskatoons and uh, uh, highbush high blueberries and things like that, will do much better in acidic soil down in the neighborhood of six and a half. Um, but if you can get anything into the, the range of right around like six, eight to seven, uh, most things will do well. Seven, five is getting up there. I'm not real hip on home test kits. It might be worse or better than you think. You might want to spend a little bit of money and have uh, your soil tested. There's a few things I can advise you here. Number one, Blueberries do very well in containers. And even if you don't want them in a container-type arrangement, what you might consider doing is digging out uh, a fairly large depression and replacing it with um, a, a more acidic-type base soil and maybe lining it sort of the way you would do bamboo. Right With bamboo, you're not worried about the, the, the pH as much, but you put a, a barrier around. Maybe uh, t you know with bamboo, you might go three feet a three-foot trench. Uh, but with this, maybe you're looking at maybe just going uh, with some kind of a liner about a foot down, but leaving the bottom open so that you get drainage, replacing the top 12 to 18 inches of soil with a mixture so you have the in-ground look and the in-ground feel, and you're going to keep a much more acidic area. That's one thing you can do. Another thing you can do 
is if your irrigation water is probably well water, and that's probably why it's alkaline. Um, you're probably going to have a lot less alkalinity with your rainwater. So you don't have a ton of rain out there, but whatever you can do to set up rainwater harvesting uh, and use your rainwater for your irrigation, that's going to be better for everything uh, and have uh, an overall mitigating effect on the alkalinity as well. You also certainly can just get a few half barrels of whiskey barrels, maybe even half a dozen of them. Half a dozen commercial blueberry plant plants, you know, not wild blueberries, huckleberries, but the larger plants and, and look for, you know, go through like the Rain tree catalog and look for the blueberries that do better in the south. That, that, that do you know? Look for the highest uh, number when you look at your zones. Look for something that's maybe hardy in zone nine, even though you're probably in zone eight or seven, and, and that they'll do better in this heat for you. Another advantage to having them in containers, even large containers, you might need a cart to move around. If it does get too hot, if the sun does get too intense on them at a certain part of the year, you can move them somewhere else. So that's another thing that I would uh, recommend. And last, I am really big on not using commercial fertilizers, uh, as everybody knows. But there's, you know, it's like, it's like people that like see somebody get shot with a gun in a murder and say guns should go away. That's kind of how I feel about fertilizers. There's places for them. You're not going to commercially uh, grow corn in this day and age without some commercial fertilizer. It just isn't going to happen. It, it's the unfettered use of it everywhere at all times and the other chemicals that go with it that, that are the bigger problem. So if you get fertilizer that is for azaleas, Okay, azalea is also like very acidic soil, and it's really not that easy to find blueberry fertilizer, but it's really easy to find azalea fertilizer. You get azalea fertilizer, and you use that on your blueberries, you're going to get a, a somewhat acidifying effect to your soil, and that's going to help as well. And then, you know, think about this. Everybody's worried that pine needles are acidic. So if you got yourself a bunch of pine needles and mulched around your blueberries with pine needles, well, you're going to get us some acidity. I'll also tell you this. Overall, this can be overthought. I'm concerned for you because you're in such an alkaline environment. But in most places, for most of the audience, they're worried, well, my soil's 7 and I need 6.4 for my blueberries. Your soil is not 7. The average of your soil, when you take a sample and mix it all up, is 7. Your soil actually stratifies in pH. In other words, your first inch will be a different pH than your, your, your fifth inch of soil. And your sixth inch of soil, your seventh inch of soil. In most areas, there's quite a variance. If we don't turn the soil over all the time, pH is stratified. So we can have an acid-loving and an alkaline-loving plant growing side-by-side side in the same soil, unaltered, doing very, very well. And all it is is the majority of the root system is forming at a stratified level that's got a, one pH for one plant and another pH for the other plant. We need to realize that things aren't quite as simple as we try to make them out in modern agriculture. And there are varying levels of pH based on the decomposition rate of soil, what it's being formed out of, how old the soil is, and what have you. So with your situation, I would do some level of amending, and the easy answer for anybody with blueberries is containers. Um, love to grow them in the ground myself. They do really well uh, if you can find the right environment for them. But, you know, a few big flower pots or whiskey barrels and a few of the high bush variety of blueberries that grow the large berries, and, boy, you can grow a ton of berries in a few containers. And then you get the acidity that you want and perfect control over it. And honestly, in a lot of places, I think you could get away with it. But the further south you go, blueberries are not the most heat-loving plants. The more perfect you have to be, so containers might really be the way to go for you. Let's go ahead and take another call. Hey, Jack. This is Terry, or a.k.a. Cool Guy on the Forum. I just had a question and a comment. A question. Um, 
how, how do you feel about uh, charitable giving to like nonprofits and different things? Are there certain ones that you like to support, or how do you go about evaluating? I mean, I give I currently give money to like my my state rifle association and NRA, and then I give money to the Arbor Day Foundation. They give me trees in return, um, and different things. And then my comment would be, um, I just watched the movie uh, Food Inc. Uh, prior to your recommendation on prior podcasts. And it's a pretty eye-opening uh, movie to watch, so I recommend to anybody. Uh, thanks for all you do. Bye. Well, first, I like your choices there because your State Rifle Association isn't you know, particularly considered to be a charity, but it's a concern and a cause you care about. And I think that we need to understand that charity has two definitions. One is in the eyes of government so we can deduct income taxes for it. And the other is the real definition, which is supporting causes that we are concerned with. And I try to focus more on the second one. I certainly give uh, tax-deductible donations to a variety of organizations and agencies. And when I do that, I certainly take the tax deduction because I'd rather have the, that agency have it. Uh, then the government have it. So I, I try to do a lot of that. But I also look at other things like, hey, um, if I have a relative that's come on hard times and I make their house payment for a month, that's an act of charity. You know, especially if they didn't ask for it. It's not a loan or anything. I just find out that they're in trouble and say, hey, you know what? Your mortgage payment's covered for April. Rock on with your life. Put it back together. And we've actually done things like that. I think if you happen to see a neighbor struggling and, you know, go into your preps and pull out a few things and put together a grocery bag full of food and take it over there, that's charity. And I think that kind of charity in a lot of ways is more important uh, than the Red Cross or anything like that or St. Jude's or, or things like that. And I don't want to put down any of these charitable organizations. I'm just saying that that's a big part of it. Um, but I think it's not charity if you're just giving away crap that you don't want anymore. And I think that's one place a lot of people get confused. Like right now, we're going through our closets and our dresser drawers and everything. And we have all these clothes that we really don't need anymore. And we're packing them up. We're taking them out to Goodwill and Mission Arlington. And we have a kitchen table we don't doesn't really fit in up in Arkansas. So we gave that to Mission Arlington, which is a, a local homeless shelter in Mission here in the city of Arlington, Texas. I don't really consider that charity. I consider it, they did me a favor by taking the stuff that I would have otherwise had to throw away. Because I didn't, I didn't feel anything, any sense of loss or giving. So to me, charitable contributions means I'm actually giving something that otherwise I would have kept. I'm making a choice to give it to someone else rather than keep it to myself. Not to give it to someone else versus throw it in the garbage. Nothing wrong, that's why we do it. There's nothing wrong with it. It just isn't at the same level of giving. I'll also tell you that The most important thing I think we can do with charity is give to, to, comp, to, to, to organizations and to groups and to people that do things we really believe in, where we really want our money to go, and do try to make sure the money's going where we think it is. Red Cross, I have nothing negative to say about them overall as a charity. If you want to give to the Red Cross, great. They do a lot of wonderful things. But we know from having Brandon on, who has a small nonprofit that does relief work uh, on his own accord in Haiti, and has been doing it ever since the earthquake, that the Red Cross took in billions, and it has done very little in Haiti. And uh, my problem with groups like the Red Cross and, and like Salvation Army and things like that is a lot of times a big event happens, and they know eyeballs are on the event, and they advertise the event and say, help now. And they take in a huge portion of money, but a very small portion actually goes to that cause. So if you see an earthquake happen somewhere and you want relief to go to that area, find a small nonprofit that's got boots on the ground. They're going to put every dime to work. 
Uh, and again, I want you to see charity is bigger than a tax deduction. If, if, if you really want it to matter, the neighbor, again, that's on hard times, that's charity, and that's good charity. You know, that's good charity. Giving to your church, if you're involved with a church or temple or synagogue or, or mosque or whatever, that's a charity as well. But, but try to see it outside of those, those, um, those institutional types of charity. Um, if you see someone that really, you believe that if you help them, it will actually go to further their life. And you take a step to help that happen, whether it's financial or through a thing or through actions and deeds. To me, that's charity. And that's how I approach it. I also approach it as I always want to give a little bit more this year than we gave last year, and yet I don't want to be keeping score. So I don't really like to keep track of everything we've done, but yet I like to keep a feeling on it to where, you know, we haven't done enough this year yet, we're going to do more. And all I can tell you, and I cannot tell you, again, I've talked about this when I've had shows about money, I cannot tell you the mechanics or the science whereby this works, But the more we have given and the more we have opened and the more we have done for others, the more we've had for ourselves. Every time we take a step to do something positive, we seem to get back tenfold. And you can make that a biblical component. You can make it a spiritual component. You can make it a physics-based component. You can make it a cosmological component. You can make it whatever you want to. All I'm telling you is it works. And if you don't believe me, try giving and see what happens. Uh, and with that, let's go ahead and take the next call. Hey, Jack. It's uh, Ding calling from Australia. Buddy, um, I've been invited on my um, first hunting trip. I started shooting after listening to your show, and it's um, been about a year now, and sort of made a few friends and so on at the clubs. And I've been in 33, and I've been invited on my first hunting trip next month. Now, we're going to... My question is related to what one of my um, rifles I should take. Uh, I have a 22 Marlin, and I have a um, an under and over double barrel 12 gauge shotgun, and I have a 30 30 Marlin. We're going to normal rural farmland in Australia, which is sort of open paddocks, bit of small bush, sort of stuff, and probably lightly wooded. And I've been told what's there is mainly rabbit and goat. So I'm just wondering, out of those three um, rifles, what would be the best to take and carry? And if you sort of suggest the shotgun, then then what sort of um, sort of shells I should be taking? A mix of shells. And if you select the 22, you know what sort of uh, rounds I should be getting in that that might cover most of those bases. And um, anything else you can add? Um, I'd, uh, you know, rabbits and goats. I'd like not to waste the meat. Uh, in Australia, we have a lot of diseases they put into the rabbit to try and keep the numbers down. So I'm not too sure if we're even allowed to eat them. So if there's any strains out there that could put a comment in the show notes about that, that would be cool. Um, secondly, you know, if you just chuck them in an esky with some ice in it and drag them home, are they good for two days to cart around on ice? And um, I can find out how to carve one up and maybe I can just feed it to my dog anyway. I wouldn't want to waste it and I'd like to give, um, give it a bit of a go trying to cut up some of these animals. So I uh, value your opinion as always and um, love your advice on specific 
first again, it's always like just like a blown away honor when I have people calling from like the UK and Australia and play in Canada and all over the world, not just here in America. So thanks for calling in. Um, let me see if I can help you there. I believe what you said is rabbits and goats. I think goat was the second one. So let's start with rabbits. Uh, with rabbits, you can't really go wrong with a 22 or a shotgun, but it depends on the type of hunting you're going to be doing. If, if the rabbits are more of like a spot and stock hunt where you're going to get still shots, 22 is a great way to go. Uh, but more than likely, you're going to be causing them to break, you know, and you're going to be taking running shots, and then you want a shotgun. And of course, uh, as long as you're in range, a shotgun is great for a rabbit, whether he's sitting or running. As far as what shells I would take for rabbit, I'm a big fan of six shot, number six shot, uh, with, uh, with, you know, what we typically call a high brass, uh, not a three inch magnum, but a two and three quarter inch magnum sometimes they're called. Uh, but most six shot, you're gonna have a, a full, uh, drams equivalent load of powder anyway. What I'm talking about would be, for instance, is, you know, um, an ounce and a quarter to an ounce and a half a shot, and probably an ounce and a quarter. An ounce and a half, you're looking at kind of a turkey load there. Number six shot, um, and, and you're gonna be you're gonna be fine with those for for most rabbits. If your rabbits are like big rabbits, like what we would have uh, in, in Texas, um, uh, jackrabbit size rabbits, something bigger than a typical cottontail, or you know a hare sized rabbit that takes a little more uh, killing, you drop down to number fives or even number fours. But six is pretty much what I use for rabbit and squirrel uh, across the board. Uh, you probably have a, an improved cylinder and a modified barrel on that uh, over and under. And um, with rabbits, kind of a dense pattern is good for knocking them down flat. So if you have choke tubes you can change out, you might want to go ahead to uh, and put a second uh, modified, maybe do a modified, improved modified combination if you do have choke tubes that sweat, slip out. But uh, I shot a lot of rabbits, man, with an improved cylinder choke and uh, had no problems with it. So that's just kind of edging to the, uh, to the side of a little bit more uh, density of the pattern there. Definitely would stay away from the full chokes. Rabbits tend to break really close in sometimes, and you, you know you want to let them get out before you take the shot. But sometimes, if you let them go too far, you lose the opportunity for a shot. A full choke on a close shot on a rabbit. Sometimes there's not a lot left. So that's with the rabbits. With the uh, goats, there's no reason a typical goat you're not going to be able to put down with a shotgun slug or, or some buckshot. So the shotgun could be an all-around tool. Um, but you might want to just, unless there's some kind of travel restrictions in Australia with more than one firearm or something like that, you might really want to take your 30-30 along with your uh, your shotgun for this trip. And uh, for your 30-30, I'd recommend plain Jane, old-fashioned, 150 grain, uh, you know, semi-jacketed uh, uh, lead core bullets, just your typical 150 grain, uh, 30 cal bullets uh, in that, you know, Remington, Winchester, whatever you have available to you over there. And uh, they should do just fine on something like a, a goat's much smaller uh, than the average uh, deer, at least most of the most of the deer that are out there. Um, and I think you said goat. If you said something else, call back and let me know I've got that wrong. Um, but the 22 definitely is, is underkill for a goat, again, if that's what you said there. And, uh, you know, as far as eating them, as far as local diseases and all, man, I, I really can't be your resource on that. You have to talk to your mates there that you're going to go hunting with and ask them what they typically do. And uh, I would get some direction for them. You know, how, how often do you guys actually take anything? What are you taking uh, as far as, I mean, to collect the game? You know, what are you generally shooting and killing and, and things like that? But uh, I say most likely here, based on what I think I got from you, 30-30 with 150-grain bullets uh, and a shotgun with uh, some six-shot, 
and you should be good to go. And uh, enjoy yourself. And uh, as far as you know, carving stuff up and all, and uh, storage life. The most important thing is you got to gut, especially a big game animal like a goat. You got to get them gutted. Uh, the best thing would be gutted, skinned, and quartered, and on ice. And then, yeah, you got a few days, no problem there. Uh, but if you leave the uh, internal organs inside, they'll start to bloat, and you can get a lot of problems with your meat. Rabbits, you can you can gut them and then skin them, or skin them and then gut them, and it depends on your situation. When we were out hunting, and it was like kind of warm out and all, and we didn't really want to stop, and we'd happen to shoot a rabbit, we'd go ahead and gut them and leave the fur on and throw them in the in the pack, and then we would, you know, at the end of the day when we were cleaning rabbits and pheasants and squirrels and whatever, we would go ahead and uh, skin them out. When I was taking short trips, and I'm only going to be gone for like an hour or two, and it was like, you know, just for a couple hours after work or something, with squirrels and rabbits, I generally would not gut them, bring them home, uh, skin them first, and then gut them. It makes skinning a little easier um, if you don't have the the, the, uh, the the stomach wall opened up. Uh, but that's something you're going to kind of have to find some local help on. I mean, it's hard to do over the air. Um, but as far as the, the uh, firearms recommendations, those are the best ones I have for you. I really hope you have fun doing this, though. It's more important that you get out there and start doing it, start learning. And um, popping a couple rabbits would be a good good first start for you. Uh, so maybe you look more to the rabbits on your first trip than the goats. But, hey, if you get an opportunity, goat's some good taste and stuff, folks. I have no problem eating goat. Those of you that do have probably never eaten goat, at least not properly prepared goat. Let's take another question. Hey, Jack. Uh, Frank here in Dallas. Creative M2 on the forum. I had a question. I was ran into a situation at a gas station where somebody comes to me and asked me to pump the gas tank in. <clears throat> I want to know how you uh, how you personally deal with, I guess, I want, I guess bums or people down in their luck or people, you know, uh, coming up to you at gas stations or any other public place and asking for stuff. I just kind of want to get your take on that. I gave the guy a couple bucks. Uh, you know, I felt bad, but sometimes I feel like a sucker. I uh, appreciate your thoughts. Thanks. Okay, I guess that kind of jives with the charity question earlier. And, uh, I mean, I'll just put it to you this way. When, I, when that does happen to me, it happens quite a bit. It is a scam, by the way. There's a big scam. You hang around a gas station, say you just need enough money to get home. You need maybe three, four dollars worth of, uh, to get, get some gas. And, a lot of times people just pull out a five and hand it to these people, and they'll do this over and over again. They'll do it at one gas station for a while, and then they get marked, and they go to another one. And uh, I have a real simple solution for that to separate the people that are scamming it from the people that actually need gas. Where's your car, man? I'll put some gas in it for you. You know, where's your car? I got a five-gallon can of gas in the back of the truck here. I'll just fill it up for you. Where's your car? A lot of times they don't even have a car. Or a lot of times they do have a car, and you, you know, say, "Hey, pull it up here, and we'll, we'll get some gas." And they go to start it. You go, "Hey, I thought you were out of gas." Oh, well, I, I was. I, I, well, I don't have enough to get home. I thought you said you lived right around the corner. That type of thing. And I generally um, get a little bit uh, aggravated with them and uh, kind of run them out if they're uh, if they're scammers. If it's someone legitimately um, that needs fuel, I mean, they, they're in the. They're not lying. They're the. They're actually like. Oh man, thank you. You know, and they were like, "Oh, I, I'm out of gas. I'm down the road right here." Hey, you know what? I got a gas can. Let's let's go down there. I'll fill your car up for you with five five gallons, and you gotta get you on home. I, I'm happy to do it. And some people say, "Well, what about if that person means you harm?" Well, that's why it's good to be an armed citizen. See, that's what I, that's what I don't think people understand. The guy that's armed with uh, with uh, real armament and non lethal armament like pepper spray and a handgun is a much better citizen. I'm much more uh, able to help you. I mean, that's part of why police are armed, folks, believe it or not. It's not just so that they can uh, they can walk around with a gun and look like they're Billy Badasses and shoot the occasional bad guy they have to. It's so that, they, you know, at least in theory, it's so they can be better citizens. 
An armed citizen is a friendly citizen. So that's how I separate people. Well, I need, I need food. Uh, let me go in and get you a sandwich. I'll bring it right back out. Because the, I don't, I don't help people that are scamming. I just don't do it. There's a guy the other day, uh, there's, a, well, I wanted a couple, uh, uh, bottles of adult spirits, a little bit more than just beverages for, uh, a thing we had going on. And, um, so I had to go because we, we can't buy it here in Arlington. I had to go, uh, over to the Fort Worth, uh, city limits to be able to go to a, a liquor store and buy, uh, it was a bottle of, I don't remember what it was. It was something Dorothy wanted for some guests. And, um, as I'm coming around this U-turn thing to get on the other side of the highway, there's a guy there. He's got a sign and he needs money and he's got his dog with him. And I, I even felt like, you know, he's got a dog. The dog was like, man, at least the dog needs to eat. And some told me, no, don't, don't give this guy any money. And, uh, I went over to the, the liquor store, found whatever it was I was looking for, and I get in line. And who's in front of me in line? The guy. And I said to the girl that was at the cash register, he was just out there on the street begging for money. She said, yeah, he's a regular here. Um, so there are scammers, and that's not the person I want to help. Uh, so hopefully that lines up with what I told you earlier about charity. Kind of a different question for the Survival Podcast, but uh, I guess one that we need to see all the time. I think if we're going to be good preppers, we need to be willing to share our preps. And that means if we have some gas in a can and there's a guy on the side of the road, we'll give him some gas. Uh, I'll tell you another time, my, uh, my buddy and I, that worked, he actually worked for me at the time. Uh, we were in a vehicle, I don't remember where we were going, but we went past, there was a lady with like an SUV towing a U-Haul. She had two babies in the car with her. She was on the side of the road. She was bawling. She was just sitting there crying in her car like she didn't know what to do. And we, we went past, came back around so we could pull over safely and went and asked her what was going on and she told us and we said, just stay right here. Don't get out of your car. It's a bad area. Um, you know, fortunately it wasn't too hot for the kids or anything. Just keep your doors locked. We'll be right back. We went and got a, filled up a can and, and, uh, cause we had all diesel, uh, diesel machinery and diesel, diesel truck and all. So we went and got a can and filled it up with some gasoline and brought her some gasoline, gave her a $20 bill and, and she said, what can I do to repay you? We said, pass it on. So I'm all for helping people in that situation. I'm not for allowing people to extort, uh, false sympathy though. Let's go take another call. Hi, Jack. This is Alex from Wakanda, Illinois. Um, one of my problems with growing vegetables and uh, my own uh, uh, fruits, you know, fruits and whatnot, is in, I'm in the construction uh, industry. And a lot of times in the summertime, I get where I'm extremely busy, and there goes weeks where I tend to just not get a chance to tend to the garden as much as I'd like. Um, any suggestions there? Uh, I, I am married, but we have four children. Three of them are five and under. So it's uh, my wife, and she's not as much of a green thumb as I am, uh, even though she is trying little by little, but it is harder for her to get out there. Uh, any suggestions on how to get around that and, you know, make sure that my initial investment doesn't get ruined by me not getting out there and uh, tending to it when, especially like the, during the real busy times. Well, Thank great you, question, great and I'm sure it's a good question because I'm sure there's a lot of people in very similar situations. Truck drivers are gone for a week at a time, lots of people with little kiddos. Uh, the kiddos keep you busy, especially when they're sub five years old. And I'd say start training them now. I mean, they're not going to do much for you yet, but a six- or seven-year-old can have responsibility of water in a garden. Um, but really what it sounds to me like you need to do is set up a drip irrigation system on a timer. 
and that'll take care of your watering. And then that is such the big part of things, especially during the summer when things are really busy. You know, your kids are young enough, they're probably not any of them in school yet, but they'll be starting to go to school, and, and when that happens, that'll help and all. But, but you know, during the, 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 the summertime, man, it's hot. Your plants need to be watered more frequently, and you're busier than any other time of the year. So that'll take a lot of it out. The other thing that you really have to do is harvest and weed. And that's something that can be done once every two weeks uh, to a degree. Now, when tomatoes are producing heavily, peppers are producing heavily, there's a point where you got to get them off or they'll get scalded by the sun, they'll overripe and things like that. Uh, but a drip irrigation system would solve a lot of your issues. The other thing you could do is just say, well, maybe maybe gardening's not for you in the typical annual gardening uh, sense. Maybe what you need to do is do something like, you know, put in a strawberry patch and maybe some raspberries and maybe a couple fruit trees or fruit, fruit bushes, maybe maybe some fi small fig trees or, uh, you know, so, something on some dwarf stock and, 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 and set that up on drip, drip irrigation. And then what you have is a, a system where the only part of it you have to really contend with There's a little bit of trimming and pruning, which per tree is five minutes worth of work of a year. And even hauling away the, 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 the part you've trimmed off is another 10 minutes a year per tree uh, and harvesting. And that might just be better for you at your stage in life. And, you know, maybe your garden, what you do is you focus on for the garden things like herbs. Um, you know, basil, oregano, uh, sage, rosemary, and things like that. They're very drought tolerant. They tend to deal with uh, not being watered a little, little bit better. Um, they don't really need to be harvested as frequently. You can go out there and, and pick fresh herbs and make that part of your cooking. And if you're doing some fruit and some uh, maybe some nut trees or some things like that, maybe some grapes, then maybe you're getting production that's better suited to your lifestyle. And I still, you know, I, I pretty much tell everybody to do that anyway. Like that really should be like your biggest focus is that type of a, a recurring crop with low inputs. And then the, the vegetable garden is just for the fresh vegetables for the kitchen and that's kind of extra. Um, it's, but it's where most people start. And I think it's because we're more comfortable with it. The harvest comes spread out. It's the food that we generally eat every day. You know, everybody eats corn. Everybody eats tomatoes. Everybody eats potatoes. Everybody eats peppers, you know, or celery or, or lettuce and things like that. Um, but those are some basic things you could do. Also planting things that, you know, kind of hold, uh, through the summer a little better that don't bolt on you. A lot of lettuces, even summer lettuces, if you're not harvesting them often and what have you, they bolt. So they send up this big, you know, thick stem, uh, with seed heads on it. And at that point, the lettuce gets tough and it's not really good to eat. Where something like Malabar spinach or New Zealand spinach is going to pretty much just get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. Uh, but, but it'll still be just as good to eat if it sits there for three weeks between harvests. Um, so those are some other things you could look at doing. And kind of the best advice I can give you, man, four kids under five, uh, dude, you're cranking out. You're like a machine there, man. Um, you know, but enjoy them while you can. And as they grow, train them, train them in that garden. There's a lot of things that those kiddos can learn in that garden. And uh, I did a podcast a very long time ago called Lessons from the Garden. I'm going to find that link for you, and I'm going to put a link in today's show notes and listen to that. I go through different crops and what you can use those crops to teach your children. And maybe if you can make, even if they're not doing the work, as they get a little older, and by five they're old enough, trust me, five are definitely old enough, that you can just be with you while you're doing the work and make it part of batty time, well, then maybe you can find some more time to be out there because you're not dividing it, you're actually making practical use of it. And there's a lot of crops that can te teach very deep 
lifelong lessons to our children. Again, I'll put a link to that old podcast in uh, today's show notes. Uh, and with that, let's go ahead and take another call. Hello, this is Aiden. I wanted to get your opinion on blacksmithing as a skill after a major disaster happens and what the advantages and disadvantages might be to this skill in a situation, if any. And what would you suggest doing to get started? Um, I have an opinion of this that I think a lot of people are going to take exception to, but I actually think that blacksmithing is more valuable as a skill right now than it will be if we have a long-term disaster, at least in the initial stages. Um, again, I think that a lot of times when people look at a skill like blacksmithing for shit at the fan, they're looking at the the road warrior level disaster where everything's back to the Stone Ages or the Bronze Ages, in this case the Iron Age, you know, and and all modern conveniences are wiped out and society has uh, been you know cut in half in population and it's it's the end of the world as we know it in the Hollywood sense and um, you know I always caveat this by saying that it's not that that can't happen, it's just it's not what we should be spending most of our efforts preparing for. And I think that, you know, in that that instance, the advantages of blacksmithing are you can make stuff at a time when no one else can. And a good blacksmith can make pretty much any tool or implement that's necessary. Um, if you want to make money as a blacksmith, then what you actually need to do, in my view, to really make money today as a blacksmith is to specialize as a swordsmith. Because uh, a handmade sword takes a long time to make, but it sells for an awful lot of money. And most of the guys that are good at it, um, if you want to buy one of their swords, you're going to be on a waiting list for a year or more right now. I've checked into some of them, not because I'm going to part with the money it takes, but just because I was curious. You know, what is a really good quality handmade sword selling for today? And it's thousands of dollars when you get a chance to buy from the guy making it. Um, and I think there's a lot of other things that can be done with blacksmithing and little products and things that can be made. I think it can be a, a nice little side business or even a small business. Um, for shit at the fan, again, at what I see as the most likely occurrences, I don't know that it's that valuable. If we do have that, that real uh, deep, long-term lights-out type scenario or something, then I think it's extremely advantageous because of the ability mostly to fabricate tools where people could actually decide, I want to accomplish something, and you need a blacksmith to create a tool to get that done. Not necessarily make a hammer. All right. When, when you think of tool making, uh, unless you're familiar with the, you know, kind of the milling industry and stuff like that, uh, you, generally people think of tools as screwdrivers and saws and hammers and things like that. And those are tools. But anything that you use to perform a function is a tool. And a lot of times tools are very specialized. And if the, the, the general manufacturing where the, these, these tools and dyes and, and components like this come from uh, ever is adver heavily adversely affected, um, then you know a blacksmith can do a lot of that stuff and can do it without electricity, can do it without, without electric tools. You need a source of energy for the heat, uh, but you can do it without even electricity, where a lot of your millwrights and uh, your mill workers and things like that, they and lathe operators and all, they can make awesome tools, dies, and fabricate stuff, but you turn the power off and, and they've got a real problem. So I think the only time we get to where the skill becomes extremely valuable due to a disaster scenario, it's the big one. It's the lights out, it's the Patriots coming collapse, it's something to that level. And again, I just don't think you should bet the farm on that. 
again, though, I think it's a very valuable skill right now. I think that there's tremendous marketing opportunities for various things that can be fabricated by blacksmiths. Uh, marketed is made in America, made with traditional uh, uh, skill sets. The biggest money I've seen, and if, if anybody knows anything else, correct me if I'm wrong, but biggest money I've seen is sword making, and that is the thing about that is very, very specialized. It, it, you can learn basic blacksmithing fairly quickly, basic stuff, and you get better as you go. From my understanding, it takes a lot of experience to become a good swordsmith. How do you get started? Uh, my belief is that you get started the way blacksmiths have gotten started for all eternity. Find somebody in your area who's already practicing and apprentice with them. Work with them. And I think most people that are practicing the art of blacksmithing really uh, love what they do. They're doing it for uh, as much for the love of, of, of the art as they are and to preserve the art is they are for any kind of financial gain. And I think that's why most of them are very happy to work with people. Um, there's a guy named Mike, can't remember his last name though, he's from the Hoodlums Forum that I met. Young guy, he was like 19 when I met him, he's probably 20 now, and uh, he does blacksmithing. And maybe I'll reach out to him. And Mike, if you're out there listening, ping me by email, man. Maybe I can get you on the, on the, on the show as an interview. And just talk about blacksmithing, how you get started, the kind of things that you can make, things like that. Because I'm speaking... In a way, I don't like to speak about a skill set here. Theoretically, I don't know any. I don't know the first thing about blacksmithing other than I know some of the stuff they can make, and I know the kind of money that they can make on some of their stuff, and and I can you know kind of take that and put that into multiple scenarios in my head. But I, I couldn't make a nail for you as a blacksmith. Don't know the first thing about how to do it. So, uh, Mike, if you're out there, if anybody else out there that's a blacksmith that would like to come on and talk about it, and again talk about how to find somebody in your area doing it. Uh, how to get started and the type of things that you can create and what, you know, and maybe some things I'm missing. Let me know, Jack at the Survival Podcast.com. We'll try to get you on the air. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack. My name is Jim. I'm calling from North Carolina, and I just had a quick question. I am a uh, pest control technician by profession, and uh, I'm a pretty recent listener, and a lot of what you uh, suggest as far as planting for permaculture and stuff. Um, is right up around the house as like your first your first zone. So, uh, how do you deal with pests if you're not using any kind of uh, you know insecticide or anything? I know it's not good to have that in the in your food, but how do you deal with pests? Because as a pest tech, you know we constantly uh, admonish customers not to let uh, plants grow on their house and try and leave a little bit of space between the house. And the, uh, the vegetation, whether it be shrubs or, or anything else, and I've often uh, suggested people not plant their, their uh, vegetable or herb gardens right up against the house because, you know, as far as my job goes, it, it limits where I'm able to apply the pesticide then to help them keep, you know, all the pesky bugs like the ants and roaches and stuff out of their house. So if you can comment on that, I'd appreciate it. And uh, I really enjoy your show, and I thank you for, uh, for all your hard work. Thank you. Well, there's an old saying that when the only tool you carry is a hammer, every problem looks like a nail. And uh, I think there's some of that here, not completely, but some. And I mean, first of all is, I think you'd be surprised that most people that are practicing heavy amounts of permaculture and have herb gardens up next to their home and things like that generally are going to have very little infestation problems to begin with because they have such a predator-rich environment. And as a pest tech, you know that the main reason that insects come into your home is for food and shelter. There's little you can do to prevent them from seeing your home as shelter, but there's a lot of things you can do to prevent them from seeing uh, your, your, your home as a source of food, which is not having any 
uncovered or available food to attract them in or allow them to access. Um, the big concern that I have with a lot of this stuff is termites. So I don't do anything with wood mulches uh, or I wouldn't do any hugel culture way up against the home. And what I weigh up against, I mean in contact with or within several feet. And keep in mind, zone one is not... It begins the second you walk out your door, but it doesn't end five feet later. Zone one's as large as it is needs to do to be effective for your home, uh, how your energy flows around your home, uh, what kind of shadows you have, what your terrain's like. So zone one could be anything from, uh, you know, uh, in a small lot it might be, uh, Uh, 50 square feet for some people in a real small environment. Uh, for other people, it might be a thousand square feet. For people on very large acreage, zone one might be half of an acre or even more. So zone one is flexible, right? And, and I, I don't like any kind of real woody material up against the home. But for instance, we do herbs right up against the home. And we don't have any problems with that, but we use, uh, kind of a, a pea gravel. As, uh, as mulch, which is very hot. Uh, it's not very liking to insects, uh, but the herbs can handle it. So that's the kind of thing that we would plant up close to the house, and we haven't had uh, any problems. We actually did have a termite problem that we had to have an exterminator such as yourself come in and knock down, but that was due to a very wet spring, and they got into the fence. Uh, and they went from the fence into the home, and the fence came right up, you know, just like they, a lot of times in suburbia, they have those privacy fences, they come up right up to the side of the house, they got into the, the beam of the fence right at the side of the house, and then they went from there into the foundation, and uh, we had to have, you know, where they drill holes and, and put this termite po poison that I hated using, but you got to save your house, so... Um, termites are the big ones that I worry about. We don't have, and in different areas you have different scenarios. In Florida, there's a lot of cockroaches, um, dozens and dozens of species. Fortunately, only a couple of them like to get inside houses, but it's a little bit different there, and you might have to deal with a, a different situation there. But what I, what I kind of admonish people to do is don't go spraying a lot of insecticide around your home anyway. Um, I know that's your business, and it's what you do, and it's kind of what you have to do, but... Um, If I had to have you come to extermination work in my home, I would say, well, you're not spraying it on my food, and that includes the plants on the outside of the house. Uh, so you're treating more on the inside and on the uh, the, the entry points. Um, now, as far as plants touching the, 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 the building, I mean, I actually am a big-time favor of that because if you look at what it would do for you, if you take a typical brick wall and uh, you leave it completely uncoated, Uh, it's got a life cycle of about a hundred years with, uh, with little maintenance and, and not much longer than that. If you grow ivy on it, you're talking a, a life cycle of maybe three or four hundred years. Uh, and that's direct from Bill Mollison, so I trust that source. And, uh, I, I think that there's a lot of places like that where we can use, um, plants to shade from the sun, plants to protect from wind damage, uh, you know, dust damage and all types of things like that. So I'm all about having the plants just come up and literally envelop uh, parts of the home uh, to a degree. Uh, but again, the ground level, say, I'd say four feet out from the house, so from the, from the, the wall out about four feet, nothing with wood mulches or really wood-based mulches, um, synthetic mulches, uh, 
uh, pea gravel, things like that, and the harder your plastic can handle that. But as soon as we're three, four feet off from the wall, then you can just go do whatever you want. That's That's been my experience. Now, I don't know if maybe the pest situation is different where you're at or what have you, but it's worked well for me, and I haven't really heard about it being a problem for anybody else. I've had a lot of people ask about termites, and are we inviting termites if we do hugel culture? And uh, I think I put it to you this way. If there's termites in your area, they're, they're there. And they're gonna breed and they're gonna, they're gonna do stuff anyway. And, um, I've had, uh, places where we found, you know, we had another house that we had, you know, would find termites in, um, in wood mulches all the time and they were never a problem in the home. It's about them breaching and getting in, uh, I think is the bigger concern there. Uh, but they're the one that I really worry about. Ants, uh, within most situations, it's something you deal with as it comes and, and other buggers, but termites actually eat your house. So that's the one you got to be careful of. And if it gets to a point where you have to use something really to knock them down and it costs you some of your plants, it costs you some of your plants. Uh, because you cannot, you can't let those things in. That's like giving your house cancer. Best they can do for you want that, on that one, man. Uh, let's go take another call. Hey, Jack. Uh, this is Jake uh, down in Austin. And I had a comment, really, and I'd like to hear your, your thoughts on, uh, or comments about just general health and taking care of one's physical fitness. We hear a lot about, you know, technology and storage and uh, covering all the bases, but uh, we don't hear a lot in the community about just taking care of your health. I guess it's sort of implied, but I think there's a certain irony to people that are not taking care, clearly not taking care of themselves, but doing all this other prepping. And uh, I, I just think it's worth, worth mentioning that, you know, all the ammo in the world ain't going to help if you can't if you can't make a, a 50 yard dash or 100 yard dash or whatever. So, uh, love to hear your comments on that. Thanks a lot. Well, it's something I talk about on occasion, but I don't spend a, a ton of time on because, again, anything that can be broken off into its own little segment um, and, and be, you know, like the fitness hour or something, I, I don't generally go too deep into because there's a lot of information out there for anyone that wants to get themselves in a good physical shape uh, to do so. I, my personal philosophy is I'm big on what I call functional fitness, and I'm sure other people use that term as well. And what I mean by that is fitness that enables you to actually do the things that you need to do on a daily basis and be healthy and live a long time and be happy. Um, I actually think that if you spend uh, two hours a day or more bouncing around doing aerobics or you're trying to look like the guy on the cover of Shape magazine that you're just not acting like a human being, and if that's your if that's your beat and that's what you want to do, fine. But um, it's not real. It's it, it's not actually very functional. Uh, I've seen guys that are these big giant bodybuilders, and you take them for a walk up the up the mountain, and they're ready to pass out and die after about two hours of uh, steady hiking, carrying a load because they can do a lot of work, but they can't necessarily move their body a lot. Uh, I actually believe that a lot of the aerobic exercise that we're doing in America today, all the bouncing around and, yay, let's go, and all that stuff they have, you know, work your abs, girls, and all that, um, it actually builds up a lot of core body heat, and that's actually quite damaging to our body long term, that the person may be in good cardiovascular health short term and may be in a good weight uh, category short term, but long term they're actually doing damage to their internal organs and I take that lead from uh, the research done by uh, Russian scientists on their own Olympic athletes and the, the, the training that they came up with. And that's, of course, from my work with Val Ryazanov, uh, who was formerly part of the KGB. 
And uh, they don't believe in that type of exercise over there. It's all about functionality. Now, they work really hard. They, they work harder than I want to, um, but they do it in a different, more low-impact way, and they don't do it with a tremendous amount of weight. Uh, they do incorporate weight training. They, they still do a lot of kettlebells over there. But overall, I believe that the best way to stay in shape is a human. Because please remember, that is what we are before anything else. We're human beings, just to act like a human. And to say, well, what is a human being supposed to do? How is a human being supposed to live? When when the planet didn't have Twitter and Facebook and YouTube and, and swivel chairs and escalators and malls and, and shopping bazaars and uh, giant fields that grew all our food for us, and if we took all of that away and stripped it away, going back, let's say, a thousand years, Uh, the, the majority of human life at that time was vastly different than it was today, but it was very similar to the way it had been since the dawn of evolution of the human being. Whether you believe God snapped his fingers and made Adam and Eve, or that man climbed out of the primordial ooze, or were an accident of evolution, whatever you believe, from the time that human beings were actually human beings, you know, two hands, two feet, head walked upright, able to communicate with each other and act, and if you looked at the The, the person you'd go, that's a human being. From that time forward, it's a hell of a lot longer than the last thousand years. And really, it's the last 200 years that we live this lifestyle. We have a much longer period of time that we evolved. And if you say, how did we evolve? What did humans do? We were hunter-gatherers. We lived outside. We walked an awful lot. We ate in small amounts over long periods of time. Uh, we ate natural foods. And when I say natural, I mean foods that were very... Uh, moderate in any type of processing, including cooking. We ate, we ate meat that was either raw or smoked or dried, uh, or cooked over a kind of a rough fire. We ate, uh, nuts, we ate berries, we ate tubers. Uh, we, if we could get a concentrated source of sugar, we had no way to preserve it. We didn't have the technology yet. So sugar was eaten in large quantities, but only at certain periods of the year. And it just so happened that the earth was smart enough to set those periods to be right before winter. So we'd have our big fruit harvests in the, the sum, late summer and early fall. And, and human beings would actually put some weight on, kind of like a bear, but not quite so much to make it through that long, lean winter period on mostly protein and fat. And uh, animal fat, of course, when I say fat. And that if we eat a diet that's primarily protein and fat and slow carbohydrate and we walk a lot, I think we're going to be in better shape than, than most of society. I think there's some doctors out there that might look at that person living that way and say, I think this is terrible. And I would say, doctors, how much time did you spend learning about health in medical school? And I already know the answer. It's almost none at all. Again, um, I'm a big fan of Dr. Andrew Weil. And a book I mentioned last week, Eight Weeks to Optimum Health, I think is an incredibly simple, easy to understand, non-fad-based book. And uh, it's something that I definitely would recommend you check out if you want to know more about keeping yourself in good shape. But I also want to say something about what the caller said right at the end. You know, all the ammo and preps in the world won't do you any good if you can't run a 50-yard dash. Really? Really? See, and this is why I don't get too deep into this subject. What do you tell a person in a wheelchair then, bud? What about the uh, veteran that came home with his legs uh, amputated below his knees on both sides? Uh, what about the person who's 83 years old? Uh, what about the person with severe arthritis? What about the person that was in a car wreck that had their pelvis shattered? So it won't do them any good to be prepared. Uh, it won't do them any good to have a means of self-defense because they can't run a 50-yard dash. And I'm not picking on the caller. Sometimes when I do this, I know I sound like I'm picking on the caller. I'm really picking on this prevailing con these concepts 
they get passed around. Look, it's really easy. It'd be, it'd be so easy for me, especially now that I've shed almost 40 pounds from my height, you know, and I, and I'll, I guarantee I'll take another 20 off in the next two to three months. Uh, to get all, look, man, you got to be in shape and look at me carrying this bag around and hey, let's talk about, you know, fire and move and, and, and let's do tactical training and all, you know, and it, it, there's a place for that and it's great for the people that enjoy it, but what about everybody else? And there's this, see, the problem is, and I guess it is a problem. The majority of people in the prepper industry that are, especially that are on forums and online are males and they're between the ages of about 18 and about 40. And that's the majority of them. And that means they're in relatively good shape. They, they have good hand-eye coordination. Uh, they know how to shoot. They're attracted to guns. They're attracted to the outdoors. They're probably active people. And it's so easy to be myopic and arrogant if we're part of that group. And then we forget, well, what about your wife? What about your kids? Right? Is your five-year-old going to run a 50-yard dash with you when you're moving and under, under fire? You know, and again, we start thinking in our mind, we play these scenarios out where it's all about the road warrior, man. It's all about that kind of a disaster, and it's just not what, what, what has historically been brought to, to people and to civilizations. There's, there's, so, there's just so much more, um, that, that's so much more likely than that. So I do think we need to be in shape. And to be in shape, I think we need to get outdoors frequently. We need to get sunshine. Sunshine, by the way, I don't believe actually causes skin cancer. I actually think it prevents skin cancer. I uh, can't go into that today. It's kind of a deep topic. I think it can aggravate predispositions or cause uh, problems, and I don't think you should get sunburned, but... I'll just leave it at this. There's people in this world that have, you know, skin cancer on the bottom of their feet. Uh, we always hear about dermatologists need to check you not just where you can see, but where you can't see. Uh, underneath your nail bed, uh, thumbnails, uh, fingernails, and things like that. Well, if the sun is the big cause, then why do we have people getting skin cancer on, on, on their feet? And, uh, I mean, one of the things that we really need to be healthy as human beings is vitamin D, and we make that ourselves through exposure to sunlight. So I think we need to be exposed to sunlight. I think we need some level of healthy stress in our lives. Uh, we don't need completely stress-free existences. Again, you'll think I'm crazy, but if you're not exposed to uh, germs, bacteria, and viruses on some level, you're not going to be healthy. Um, People that try to live like this germ-free existence, they always are using antiseptics and wiping everything down, and they're worried that their keyboard is a bacterial infestation and everything. Those people, their, their immune system never gets worked out, and when they do get hit with something, they generally get hit harder. So I think overall health, it's important. You don't want, you know, if, if you're a person that's uh, five foot eight and you weigh 325 pounds, I have no problem telling you you probably need to get off your ass and lose about 200 pounds. You probably do. And and there, there's there's a point of obesity that's ridiculous, and we we shouldn't be there as a society. But there's also this ideal of what humans are supposed to look like. That that, that you know a guy my height, five foot eleven, supposed to weigh 175 pounds according to the government. Folks, when I was five foot eight and played football in high school and was lean and mean as I ever was in my life, I weighed 170 pounds then. Uh, when I was, you know, I kind of was young when I joined the military, so I grew a little bit after that. But when I was in airborne school, I was about five foot nine. And uh, when I came out of airborne school, of course, there was basic, AIT, and then airborne school. I came out of airborne school, I was 183, 184 pounds. And I was uh, two inches shorter. And uh, if I ever scan the picture for me from jump school, 
you'll look at me and see there ain't a lot of fat there. So how is a person like me ever supposed to weigh 170 pounds uh, at five foot eleven? It just doesn't make sense. And I think that women are worse about this than men. You know, women put on, you know, they'll put on 10 pounds and they, as they go into their 40s. And, and they, they, they spend the rest of their life trying to get rid of it instead of worrying about function, f- focusing on their health. So I've gone too long on this question, but basically I think if you want to be healthy, focus on your health to the exclusion of the scale unless there's an obvious problem. Walk, eat right, get exposure to the sun. Uh, let's go take another call. Hello, Jack. This is Steve in Arkansas, also Sam2021 on the forum. I was wondering if there were was a hierarchy of stuff. Like myself, I'm what I call a tax time prepper. When I have the money from my tax return, that's when I buy my major survival gear or prepping stuff. This year it was the garden. Last year it was really good sleeping bags for the wife and kids. The year before Berkey. I was wondering if there's a hierarchy that you would suggest or any tiered items that should go first, second, third. Thanks for all the help you've given us and keep going. We love this podcast. You know, when, when I get a question like this, I always say that what we have to do is we have to realize, first of all, that I can't tell you the answer to that question directly. Because it's impossible because I don't know your life, your risk tolerances, uh, what you're most concerned about, the area you live in, and what your most potential disasters are, how much cash reserves you have. Probably not a lot based on the way you're telling me you're doing things. So maybe, you know, honest to God, maybe your next time you have a sizable chunk of change, your next prep is to put it somewhere, lock it up, and don't spend it and have it as emergency cash. But I really can't tell you that's what you should be doing because you might say, well, uh, you know, actually we have this part of our budget that's for savings and we have a fairly large savings. We just don't spend it and that's why we don't have the money for prep. So I, I don't really know how to answer that directly. But what I can do is I can start out with the, with, you know, the, the 10 tenants and it's actually 12 tenants now and I really need to update the website. Uh, because I've included a few things we've talked about a lot and, and made them tenants of the of the, uh, the survival philosophy. But the first one is the most important one. Everything you do to prepare for disaster tomorrow should improve your life today, even if nothing goes wrong. So we can start there. We can say, well, you know, do we really need stuff, or do we just need to be more prepared to deal without income? And I think the first prep that you need to make, and all the things around it, need to be prepared to deal without income. Because through multiple avenues, a reduction or complete loss of income is the most probable disaster that any human being in the United States of America in the next five years is going to encounter. So what we always need to be doing is looking at that inverse relationship, um, which is you know when we look at the probability of a disaster versus the impact scale of a disaster. And what we see is the higher the impact scale, the lower the probability. So to go to extremes, um, a very low probability event, asteroid hitting planet Earth, wiping out 80% of the global population, an asteroid, you know, the size of, the, of Mount Everest hitting our planet, a, a, a civilization-ending event. Impact scale, huge. Probability, very, very, very low. So I'm not going to walk around worried about the asteroid hitting the planet because, you know, if it takes out 80% of the population, there's an 80% chance. It's not my problem anyway. So 
I'm going to focus on the things that have a very high probability of happening to me. And I think the most highly probable thing that can happen to any American today, again, is a loss of income. Unfortunately, the next highest one is a loss of a loved one or the loss of themselves and leaving a loved one behind. I put those on about equal probability other than you probably have more people that you love than, you know, than your than one. So that maybe the probability is a little higher you'll lose the loved one, but I'm really talking about that nuclear family where everybody depends on each other. So everything that we do initially should be to prepare to deal with that income. And if we can get there first, then we'll have something called surplus cash. And then when we have surplus cash, we can start preparing for other things. But that doesn't mean we don't do some very fundamental prepper type things. Like the first thing I would ask you is, I'm glad you you know you got a Berkey. I'm glad you've done some other things. But do, do you have a deep pantry? Are you eating what you store and storing what you eat? How much subsistence of food do you have in your home? And if the answer is less than 30 days, the answer is you don't need to do anything until you get up at least a 30 day reserve food supply. Because if you go without income, you know what? That's going to help you. You also need at least a 30-day emergency fund. Now, long-term, I want a 90-day food supply and a 90-day emergency fund minimum. Um, but don't, that's your first step. That, that's, that's what you need to do. And if you get that done, all of a sudden, everything else will get easy and all of these other things that seem complicated and complex. Now, it doesn't mean you can't be doing other things like that, like putting garden beds in and things like that. But realize, I think a lot of people spend too much money when they get started in gardening. There's nothing wrong with not putting a raised bed in at all. There's nothing wrong with going out into your garden and, and, and marking out a bed, digging up the sod, taking the grass away and resodding a bare spot in your lawn or just killing it digging up the soil, investing in a couple bags of compost if you don't have any you've made for yourself, digging compost into the soil, and planting right into the ground. And if you plant something that's a high-yield crop with uh, that you can do from seed like beans, how much money does that really cost? And now you've gotten started with that. And maybe a few other areas, you put in some herbs and some things like that. Now you've kind of got that going, and you can expand and grow from there. And I think that that, that that kind of a philosophy that the first thing we're going to prepare for is mom or dad or mom and dad losing their jobs and having to go three months without any income and trying to be stable enough for that three-month period so that when we come out the other end of it and mom and dad find new jobs or find a new way to make income, uh, we're going to be okay and we're going to rock on with life. And we're not going to budget unemployment into that. Let me say that again. We're not going to budget unemployment. We're not going to budget severance pay. We're not going to budget anything into that at all. And it's important that we don't. Here's what happens. People look at this and go, well, yeah, you know what I need for 90 days is I need this, but uh, unemployment's going to pay me $350, so I'm going to back that out. So there's, uh, there's you know, a 1000 bucks roughly I don't need. No, you need a 1000 bucks because you don't know if you're going to get unemployment. You don't know if your employer is going to shaft you and challenge you on it. Even if you eventually get it, you don't know if you might go a month or two fighting it to get it. You don't know that you're going to get severance just because your company generally pays severance. They might be laying you off because the company's bankrupt. Um, there's a million things that could go wrong. So any of that additional money that would come out of severance pay, vacation pay that you haven't used, unemployment, any type of disability insurance or whatever, that's gravy. You want to get 60 to 90 days of sustainability into your life with no income. And that, to me, is Tier 1. And if we can do that, like I said, everything else gets easy from there. Um, some of the other things that I want, I want a plan in place. 
There's a lot of things that we have to do that don't really cost money. So we sit down at a computer. We use, uh, you know, if we have Microsoft stuff like uh, Excel and Word, we use that. If we don't, we use OpenOffice. We use Google Docs. It's free. And we come up with a documentation package for our vehicles. Where we'd go, how we'd get there, printouts. I mean, we're talking about the printer ink here. It's the only cost, right? Where we go, how we get there, different evacuation routes, a list of everybody we would ever need to contact, bank information, insurance information, all that type of stuff. If we're worried about the stuff getting into improper hands, we code the numbers out. So, for instance, if you had a, a number that was 1, 2, 3, 4, you could simply change it if you used a positive 2 encryption, right? Instead of 1, 2, 3, 4, you add 2 to every number. And it goes three, four, five, six, and you know to back two out of it. You, you, you just make sure everybody in the family knows that. Anybody that finds that's not going to be, you know, we're not talking about, you know, protecting ourselves from uh, what do you call them? I'm thinking the CIA, but the other, the other black ops guys, the NSA or something here. We're talking about identity thieves and protecting ourselves from that. Uh, so there's things that you can do to to cover those numbers up. But what I'm saying is that documentation package, and that includes things like numbers to call if you know a tree falls through your roof. And not going, well, I'm going to cut it down with my own chainsaw. Well, not if you're hurt. Not if you were in bed, the tree fell into your roof and, and injured you, and you're in the hospital, and now your wife has to deal with it or your kids have to deal with it. So all of the things that cost no money first. So these are plans, operational procedures, agreements in the family, and then all the things that we need to be sustainable for a couple months. That's the hierarchy for me. And then we can look at things like you know having guns and having training and having food supplies that go beyond this, and having backup generators and all of this other stuff, solar panels, and getting into the self-sufficiency mode. See, I, I almost pro I probably need to do a show on this, and thank you for asking the question, because I've had it before, I've fielded it before, but now I think what I need to do is go back and revisit a topic I did maybe over a year ago. I called self-reliance a bridge to self-sufficiency. And I've, you know, sometimes they say things or do things to do a whole show and I even forget about it for a while. You've made me go back and pull this one out of that brain cell in the back of my stem, brain stem somewhere. And what I'm talking about here is first, self-reliance is all about your ability to survive for a period of time on your own. Self-sufficiency is the ability to be sustainable in that endeavor. So we can't ever really be 100% self-sufficient because we're community creatures. We're always going to want a market to go barter at or what have you. Uh, no man is an island is the way we look at that. But the closer we get to self-sufficiency, the more we could be if we had to be and the longer we could be if we had to be. And a truly self-sufficient person uh, is only going to, the, to barter to buy stuff or buying electricity from the grid or doing only that stuff by choice. They don't have to. It's just a comfort, and they know it's a comfort. Self-reliance means if something fails, you know, like the lights go out, I have flashlights in every room, and I know how to get to them. That's self-reliant because I can turn the light on, I can see where I'm going, but it'll only last as long as the batteries. Now, I can build a lot of long duration into that self-reliance by having a lot of batteries and maybe a solar pack and rechargeable batteries, but it's still self-reliance. If I put solar on the roof and I begin producing 50% of my own power, I'm 50% self-sufficient. So well, the first thing we have to do is develop a timeline of self-reliance. 30 days, 60 days, 90 days. By the time we have 90 days of self-reliance, and much of that is through having income that we save and through having smart decisions that we make like 
stocking up on food and doing opportunity buys so we buy the food for less money. And if I don't have to go to the grocery store for three months, if I, if, if, and I'm not saying I'm not going to go, but I don't have to go. If I could put food on the table for the next three months and I have enough cash and reserves to pay, keep the lights on and pay the mortgage or rent for the next three months, I have financial self-reliance in the modern world. And that's just a step. But now I can start to get creative. I can start to think. And here's the big thing that happens. Even 30 Days does this. We walk around as modern Americans with this massive weight on our shoulders of stress and worry and fear. And every single day that we gain forward an ability to exist without needing somebody else, that weight load gets a little lighter. And at 30 days, it gets pretty light. At 90 days, it starts to be extremely light. Because if we're honest with ourselves, none of us can guarantee our employment for 90 days. None of us can. Even if you're a government employee, I mean, people are learning that now, finally. So I don't know if that really answers the question. Maybe it just makes more questions for you, which might be the best answer there is. How do you set your life up that way? How do you put yourself on a plan for that? You know, don't, and, and, and here's the other thing. Every once in a while you come into a windfall of money. Sometimes it's, it's time to make an investment. Sometimes it's time to put that money away. But when you've made enough investments and you've put some money away, once in a while take the kids to, uh, to Six Flags or something. Don't be afraid to uh, live life once in a while as well. There's a lot of wonderful stuff in this world, and there's a place in our lives for joy. Please don't ever forget that. And I think with that, we'll go ahead and wrap it up today. Uh, I'm going to do something a little different today. I want to hear from you guys in the comments section. I was asking about the call-in shows, and a lot of people said they have trouble hearing the callers. I do boost the callers' voices as loud as I can with my system. I add uh, 12 decibel levels to them uh, a lot of times. What I'm going to do today, and I want to hear from you guys, if this show turns out better for you, I'm going to, instead of generating this as an MP3 right away, I'm going to generate it as a WAV. I'm going to put it through a program called Levelator that's supposed to level off the volumes. Then I'm going to put it back into an MP3, edit the music in, and publish it. It'll take more time, but I want to know from you guys, did today's show have a better ability for you to understand the callers and were the levels like not swinging on you like caller comes on and gets real quiet and then it gets real loud again let me know in the comments section and with that I will go ahead and wrap up this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't seeing our food these days you know it's on our TVs sometimes we forget Are what we eat I don't know the answer It's like there's nothing I can do It's the price we pay, I guess And we follow all the rules There's a better way to do this Let me show you a better way Revolution.
children just can't pay Nobody up there cares They're living for today 